a little review of what we taught last week. How many remember what we spoke about last week, the subject that we spoke on? About the Ark of the Covenant, correct? Yes. Yes. I know it's daylight savings, and a lot of us got an extra hour of sleep, and I think I felt more sleepy after I did that than anything. But in First in First Samuel chapter six, we see the ark come into the, in comes into Jerusalem, and we really see the blessing of the Lord in David's life begin, and in his kingship and in his ministry. And look at this; it is getting clear. Look at that, huh? Yep. It is working. All right. And when David understood the the presence of God and the presence of the symbol of Jesus Christ in his kingdom being the Ark of the Covenant. A blessing of the Lord came in, and we see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 6, a pattern begin. And in 1 Samuel chapter 7, God begins to speak to David about establishing his kingdom forever. And this is a prophecy. God speaks to David through... Nathan, the prophet, and I like that because every king and every ruler in the Old Testament that was a righteous ruler had a man of God in his life. And that's a very good thing here that Nathan was a man of God for David, and Nathan saves, basically saves David's life numerous times. And in chapter 7, God speaks to David and says, I'm going to establish your kingdom and in effect, the Messiah is going to be coming through your lineage. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is going to come through the lineage of David and through Solomon. And so David is so amazed and so honored that this is happening that he is saying to God, I have such a beautiful castle or temple or place where I live, a beautiful home, and yet God has nothing. God has just a little, small, little uh, set up where the Ark of the Covenant was. And God did not uh, allow him to build a house because God said this is a mission for, an assignment for the next generation for your son. Because there's too much blood and too much controversy in your family and this was actually a, another aspect of God's plan for David's family. And so David begins in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10 to, to have military success. Every battle that he goes to, he wins. Uh, he is having incredible amount of success. He's having military uh, advantage. And everything that he puts his hand to, God blesses that. And we see that God's presence in David's life is blessing everything that he's doing. And as a Christian, as a believer, that's what we really want to have in our life, that we would have the, the understanding that the fear of the Lord brings a blessing into our life. You know, when Pastor Tony was talking about tithing, you know, um, I don't know who gives what because I, I don't look at the books. That's not even my department. I, I have no idea who gives what, who writes what check. And that really is something I'm not interested in anyway. There's other people in the church. There's two other, Carl and Sarah, they handle the bookkeeping of what's happening. And 
when we look at uh, the blessing of God in our church, when we fear the Lord and we walk in His way, which is a way of grace and a way of faith and a way of righteousness, then we have the blessing of the Lord in our life. And then what we do is blessed by God. And we can see that happening. I can see that happening in our ministry here. And David here is in a place of success. He's in a place of uh, everything he does, he, he succeeds. And this is really what the moment that we really have to be careful because it is usually when a person is succeeding and has great blessing and has great advantage in his life that he can very easily become familiar with that and become familiar with and become let his guard down and become uh, come to a place where he's um, becoming familiar like we said last week, becoming familiar with the blessing, becoming familiar with everything that was happening. And so David in chapter 11 makes a mistake. And I love the life of David because David was a man that was after God's own heart. God had a calling on his life. David was being used by God. And David now is in a place where he's going to make a mistake. And we can learn so much from David's successes and then from his mistakes. The Bible's an amazing book, and I've said this before. If I was to write a religious book, I would write about people that never sinned, you know, never made any mistakes. There are people that were amazing people that did great things. I would not write such an honest book because I would want to have a book about a religion that is just idealistic and perfect. But God allows men and men to write the Bible. And it's a messy story. <laughs> if you look at the Bible, it's a bit messy. And uh, not a lot of preachers preach the honest things that happen in the Bible because man naturally cannot he cannot put his he cannot put his head around a God that is so gracious and so kind and a God that allows people to stumble and then from those situations redeem the whole thing and so David here becomes familiar and there's four things here that happen before he makes his mistake with Bathsheba, and this is chapter 11, he became familiar with his success. And I think that there's a beautiful verse in the book of Zechariah. It says that when there is rain, ask for rain. In the latter rains, pray for rain. What does that mean? It just means that when there is great blessing in our life, that we would never become familiar with that, and that our prayer life and that our walk with God would never become familiar or stale, that we would be on guard and walk circumspectly. If we look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, just for a moment, we're going to see here that David, it was a time of the year where kings go forth into battle. And that's the way the chapter opens. That, um, that when kings go forth to battle, that David went, sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon. But and besiege Rabbah, but David tarried still in Jerusalem. And we see that the second mistake that David does is that in his success and the great blessing that David is experiencing is that he stays, he just withdraws. That this is a, this is a, a dangerous thing because the hardest trials in a Christian's life are not the trials where they're being persecuted and they're going to be martyred, the hardest trial in a person's life is not when they are in great need. The hardest trial that I believe uh, 
a Christian faces is really the trial of prosperity. Because it is then at the time of prosperity and great blessing that our heart can be so easily removed and become familiar. And so David stays home. And that evening, he is in his bed. He rises and he goes to the roof and he sees this woman um, bathing on the roof of the king's house in verse 2. David sent and inquired after the, after the woman in verse 3. And they said, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness, and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. I am with child. Wow, what a situation now. Wow, unbelievable. David's in trouble. And David sent to Joab, and instead, and, and here's what happens is, is that when a person, when we make mistakes, the key at that point is to immediately, in 1 John 1, 9, go to God and confess it. That's all that God is looking for, is just confessing our sin. Because what David does here is he doesn't confess it, but he tries to hide it and he tries to manipulate the situation. And there are four things that David does instead of just simply confessing his sin. Because as we know in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, that there is now, there is now therefore no condemnation. 1 John 1, 9, it says that if we confess our sin, sin, he is faithful and just to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so David here, because he's familiar with his blessing and he's in a place of great power and experience, then he is now going to do, make four more mistakes. And the mistakes that is, is number one, is that he tries to manipulate Uriah, which is Bathsheba's husband. When he comes back from war, he tries to manipulate him to go to his house and sleep with his wife so that the pregnancy can be, what, attributed to right, Uriah, right? But Uriah, being one of David's mighty men, is a man of just great integrity. And he says, no, I will not do that. What will I do? Go and eat and drink and be with my wife when all the, my brothers are at war. I will stay here with you, David, and I will be right at your side. And so, number two, David makes the next mistake because Uriah does not go along with that. David lies. He lies to his... He lies, and we read this here um, in verse... And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why thou didst thou not go into thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark and Israel and Judah abide in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I go into mine house, eat and drink, and lie with my wife as thou livest, and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him and made him drunk. So he tries to get Uriah intoxicated. And when at the, and at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it, to the, sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, See ye Uriah in the 
forefront of the hottest battle and retire from him that he may be smitten and die. And so David here is the next step is, is that because he didn't confess what he had done, he began to chain sin. And chain sinning is when we add sin to sin, when we add mistake to mistake. We try to lie and then cover the lie and then try to manipulate the situation. It's getting worse and worse here for David. And, when, and it came to pass that Joab observed the city that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. So David is saying to Uriah, he sends a letter by the hand of Uriah to Joab, which is the general, of the, he's the oversight, overseeing officer of the army at that time. They are going to battle at, with Ammon. And they're, they're, they're laying siege to this city, Rab. And the instructions were in the letter that when assign Uriah to the most, um, uh, most dangerous part of the battle, and when you see him under, under fire, withdraw and let him fight on his own. And so they do that. And this is the... This is the next thing, number three. David arranges for, David, for Uriah's death by the sword of Ammon. And so this happens, and Uriah dies. And the very sad, tragic situation of, and the complication of sin is just, it's just so, it's so tragic and so heartbreaking, isn't it? And Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, Joab writes back and says, it's done. Uriah is dead. And, and there's this whole very, if you read from verse 19 all the way to um, verse 20 to 25, there's this very complicated communication going on. Everybody's trying to cover their tracks. Everyone's trying to make sure that they're not the one that's going to get blamed for Uriah's death. And then people are afraid of David's reaction. And so the point here is, is that is that when we add sin to sin, that makes a very complicated life. And we, the more that we do that, the more we're trying to cover our bases. And life becomes more and more complicated. And in verse 26, And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And in the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife, and bare him a son. But the thing... That, the, that David did displease the Lord. And so we can see that God was very displeased with the situation. The whole, the, whole, the whole thing here probably took about 10 or 11 months or maybe 10 months of this whole thing that was going on because we have to keep into consideration the nine months of the pregnancy. And I, I don't want to dig here into David's sin, but I'm, the point I'm making is, is that if we look at this carefully, we can ask some questions. Number one, why did David stay home from war? Well, the answer to that was that he became familiar and he became overconfident with his circumstances and his blessing. Number two, why was Bathsheba on the king's roof bathing? That's a good question. I mean, nobody, I've never really heard anyone talk about that, but I think that she kind of knew what she was doing. She was there. And did Bathsheba know David? Uh, we know one Jewish, um, one missionary in Israel, and his comment on this is, is that Bathsheba and David knew each other already because Uriah was one of David's mighty men. And maybe at some event of some kind, some banquet, some kind of fellowship, some kind of a time when they were all together with the wives, the men and the wives, 
there was some kind of meeting. There was a, they knew each other already. And so this situation seemed to be a bit interesting the way it happened. And so now David has made Bathsheba his wife, and they have a son, and it's still not being dealt with. And this is, David is in a place of backsliding here, and the thing displeases the Lord. And the Lord sent, in verse chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he said unto him, A story. David is in a place of denial, and he's in a place of just deception because of his mistake, and he's not dealing with it. And so Nathan understands to come at David and try to point Blake, tell, tell him what's going on, David would probably react and not receive it. So Nathan, in the wisdom of the Lord, comes and tells David a story. Because he knows that if there's a third person or a third person's story involved, then David is going to hear this, and that David's sense of justice and sense of fighting for the underdog would really hit him. And so the story goes like this, that there were two men in a city, and one rich and one, very, and one other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew together with him and with his child. It did eat of his own meat and, so, and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was as to him a daughter. <clears throat> Excuse me, what a story, huh? This little lamb became, is like a kind of a pet in the family. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was to come to him. And so this rich man has a visitor that's just passing by, and the, the custom at that time was to slay an animal and have a feast for this wayfaring man. And this is... This is sad because the rich man, instead of taking one of his own, he takes the one little lamb that this poor man had, slays it, and gives it to the rich man's visitor. And verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives and the man hath done this, thing shall surely die. Wow, that strikes a nerve with David. David was a shepherd boy, if you remember, and lambs and sheep were very precious to him, and he was a fighter for these. And so Nathan is addressing not the King David, but he's addressing David the shepherd boy, because that's, that shepherd boy was still there in David. And David speaks to him about this situation, and David is so angry, and he said, that man deserves to die. Wow, David's justice has been stirred. In verse 6, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he done this thing, because he had no pity. David said this man has to four times pay back what he had done. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Wow, what a ministry Nathan had, huh? He had to be a gutsy, a gutsy prophet to stand up before the king of, of, of Israel and say, thou art the man. Nathan represents to us the Holy Spirit with the word of God. And it can also be a person that confronts us. But when David the king is lost in his sin and lost in his deception, God still loves David. 
God has not forsaken David. God is going after David, and David's going to get right. And that's a beautiful picture of the power of the grace of God. That in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when God chastises us, it's a sign that, that we belong to God, that we are not some orphan that is just left on the street. In Odessa, I remember meeting many orphans that were living on the street, sniffing glue. They were just lost. No one was to care for them. But God does not treat us as orphans. God goes after David. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? What did God do? Did he come out with a hammer and beat them up? No, he came out and said, Adam, where are you? God always seeks us. And when we fall and we mess up, God will come after us. He'll send us the Holy Spirit. He'll send us Nathan. And there will be a confrontation. And Nathan says, you are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. And then listen to what Nathan says. Nathan begins to talk about the history of God's faithfulness and blessing in in David's life. He said, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house and thy master's wives, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Nathan was saying, God has given you so much, and if it wasn't enough, God would have given you more. And whereof thou hast despised the commandment of the Lord to do this evil in the sight. And what does Nathan say? That you took Bathsheba? No, he says, you killed Uriah. He goes, you killed Uriah with the sword and has taken his wife to be thy wife. The big point here was is that an innocent man got killed. And that, that innocent blood in Proverbs chapter 6 was shed and has slain him with the sword, and not only the sword, but the sword of the enemy, Ammon. Now for it. So what happens is, is that Nathan begins to say, and what's going to happen to David, that the sword will not depart from your house. He said that because this was done in secret, this will be done, there'll be a, there's going to, well, it wasn't, done, wasn't really done in secret, but because it was done openly, there's going to be consequences. And so he begins to explain to them that there's going to be consequences in his house and in his family. And it gets in verse 11 pretty detailed. And in verse 13, David said to Nathan, and I, it's very interesting, David's response. He says, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. He confessed it. He said, I sinned against the Lord. And this really speaks to me, and I just want to, I want to finish this message with this, the recovery part of David, because we can all look at this situation, and we can see this all over the world today that David says, I have sinned. That's all he had said to Nathan. And what did Nathan say unto David? The Lord has put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. You know, this morning, early this morning, I was looking at that Hebrew word, has put away thy sin. You know what that word is in the Hebrew? It's the same word that's used with the flood of Noah. When God washed away by the flood, all of the inhabitants of the world and all the wickedness of the inhabitants of the world before the flood. It's another word that's used to um, describe a flood or a moving an object from one place to another. That God, in, in Psalm 103, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. God has removed those. And Nathan is saying to David, God has removed your sin and you will not die. 
It's interesting to note if David had never confessed that, if David had never admitted that, and would have said to Nathan, you're lying, you don't understand, get out of my, get out of my courts, you're out of here, I think David would have met the same fate as many of the other wicked kings that followed him later. But David said, I have sinned. And that's what God is really looking for. David is not beating himself up with religious programs. David is not condemning himself. David is not um, going into some kind of religious penance of some kind. David says, I have sinned. And many of us have read Psalm 51, and we see what David is thinking in his private meditation. And I don't have time to get into it this morning, but when you go home this afternoon... Read Psalm 51 and just think about what David is doing there, what he's saying. Here's what's interesting. David does, um, David does, he, there's four things that David does not do after he sins. And I don't really know what to say about this. It's just interesting to note. But number one, he makes no public statement. <laughs> I think with something that was to happen today and that such a high level uh, leader uh, in a country, there would be some major public statement. But David makes no public statement, which is interesting. Rather, he says in Psalm 51, Lord, against thee and thee alone have I sinned. Wow. Uh, number two, David does not make apologies to the families involved. I mean, I would imagine, okay, what about Uriah's dad and mom, if they were alive? What about the families involved? What about people, the servants, the court? David is not making, he's not going around making, he's not making apologies. Maybe he did privately, but we don't see that there was this whole thing of uh, the apology tour of some kind. And I don't know what to say about that. I think that when mistakes are made in such a public way, there should be some type of apology or some type of recognition. But David doesn't do that. Number three, he doesn't beat himself up or go on some repentance plan saying, I'll never do that again. He just confesses his sin. And that's really all that God is looking for in 1 John 1, 1.9, is that we confess our sin. We just say the same thing that God says about that. That was off. I was off. And what happens? And number four, he doesn't live in guilt. He was sorrowful and he was very broken. Uh, he was very, uh, very moved. And you could see in Psalm 51 the anguish that he was going through of that, of that time. But he doesn't, after the, after the event, and we'll see this in a moment, he's not living in guilt that begins to destroy him. And so what does David do? Nathan says to David, the baby will die. Because the death of the child, the, the life of the child would represent blasphemy and mockery of, of Israel's enemies to God. Israel's enemies would say, well, what is this child he is going to be a king. And uh, does God, the God of Israel, do things like this? And Nathan said that God has chosen that the baby will die. And that is very sad. It's a very tragic thing to happen. And, you know, when children die, we can't look at it like as punishment. But in this case, this was a different situation. David's child was going to die. And so David begins to, for seven days, fast and go into the house of the Lord and to intercede that the baby would not die. And he is there. He is refusing to eat. He is petitioning God for mercy for the child. And the servants come in every day and say, the baby's not getting better. And David is in there and he continues to intercede. And then the seventh day comes 
and the baby dies. And the servants come in, and they don't know what to say to David. David's on his face before the Lord in the house of the Lord, before the ark, and he's petitioning for mercy. And David hears the servants whispering, and he knows the baby the baby's passed, the baby has passed away. And David says, has the baby died? And the servants say, yes, he has. And what does he do? He does seven things, and this is really interesting that he does. Is he, David rises, and these seven things really represent what we should do when we fail, when we confess it, and when we are on the other side of the sin. We rise. We rise up. That's number one. Rise up in the grace of God. Rebound in grace, because it's not over. We see that David's life as a king is many, many years ahead of him. Uh, in this world, when someone makes a mistake, they have the, un, they have the, the, the incorrect um, idea that it's over, that they have to go shoot themselves or go move to another state. or to. That's what the world says. The world says, it's over for you. You, you messed up, it's over. But what does David do? He understands the grace and the mercy of God, and he rises up. Micah chapter 7, verse 8, it says, Rejoice not over me, my enemy, for I will rise up. And he's talking about rising up in the grace of God. He rises up. The second thing is that he washes himself. He just goes and washes himself. He's been there for seven days. He's probably pretty dirty. He's got ashes all over him. He's got rent garments, and he's just, he's just a mess. He goes and washes himself. And I think that after we recover and rebound and we confess, we need to understand what it means to wash ourselves. And in Psalm 51, it says, Purge me, wash me, David says. And how are we washed? We're washed by the water of the word, by the grace of God. We just begin to take in the word. We begin to take in the love of God. We begin to understand that God's word is cleansing us and, and healing us and you know, whenever um, we make a mistake or whether, whatever kind of mistake it is, we want to get into the Word and just begin to be washed by the Bible, get washed by the Word of grace in Acts 20, verse 32. Number three, he anoints himself. I like that because nobody else anointed him. He anoints himself. And what that means is, is that David understood that he was still anointed of God. He began to affirm with himself that I am still king. I am still anointed of God. And in Romans chapter, uh, I believe it's at Romans chapter 10, verse 23, I believe. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. That the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Is that the right verse? Can someone check that for me? Acts, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 23, I think it is. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God does not repent. Meaning that God doesn't change his mind about the calling on your life. And we see this in Hebrews chapter 11. The great heroes of faith. There's, in every one of their, their lives, you can look, and if you were to interview them pretty severely, there would be a moment in their life where they could just put their head down and say, yep, that happened. That happened. But I got back up in the grace of God and I moved forward in faith. And that's why I'm a faith hero today. In Hebrews chapter 11, they could say. He anoints himself. Number four, he changes his clothing. He puts on the robe of righteousness. That is, in Christ, we have a new robe of righteousness. You know, the prodigal son, when he came home, he was pretty dirty. He was, he was alienated. Uh, he was being judged. But he came home, and the Father gave him a new robe. And that's what God does with the believer. He gives us a new robe of righteousness, 
a robe that's clean and that's pure. And that's not our own righteousness, but it's his righteousness. And then number five, he goes to the house of the Lord and worships. I love that. He goes to the house of the Lord. That's so important because sometimes when people fail, they just withdraw. I don't understand why they do that. I mean, I can understand because of maybe shame or, or fear or whatever, but they just withdraw and you don't see them. And, they're, and you know they're in trouble and you just want to say, look, we're not going to judge you. Just come. Just come. Be, be with us. Be in our midst. You're going to be cleansed and you're going to, we're going to, you know, we're, we, we're going to love you. We're not going to, you know, we're not even talking about what's going on in their life because we're not gossipers. And David comes into the house of the Lord and worships. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Coming into the house of the Lord with a new robe, with an anointing, with, uh, with having risen and moving forward and coming into the house of the Lord and worshiping God. Worshiping God with holy hands. Isn't that beautiful? And then number six, he goes home, he goes home and eats. <laughs> David really understood grace, didn't he? He really understood how to rebound. He goes back to his house and eats. He's sitting down and eating. And, the, and it says here that the servants in chapter 12 come to him and say, David, what's going on here? When your child was alive, you were weeping and you were, you were, you were, so, you were in such anguish and <clears throat> you, were, you were in such sadness. But now when he dies, you're eating. You're eating like you're, nothing's wrong. Nothing. I think usually when a person is in a place of traumatic, post-traumatic, uh, circumstances. He doesn't really want to eat, but David here has an appetite, meaning that he's he's everything is normal in his mind. He's he has been healed and he's been cleansed and he's been delivered from this. And David said, while he said this, he said uh, that he said, "What am I going to do if I'm if I continue to to uh, um, beat myself up or if I continue to?" Uh, uh, live in some form of of being um, uh, of of being bedraggled. Is that going to bring the baby back? And he says, "He will not come to me, but I will go to him." And so, in David's mind, he understands that this is an event, and this is an important thing. That when we confess it, that we isolate things. We just isolate it, and we don't associate in it within our memory or in our identity. Because sometimes when people fail, they, their identity gets attached to it, like, oh, that's my sin. You know, and that's why we never want to joke about things about our past. You know, like if someone was a drug addict, you never want to joke and say, you know, I'm, you know, let's go out and get high. You never want to joke like that, because that's associating yourself with what God has delivered us from. We never want to do that, because that is becoming familiar. And then lastly, number seven, he comforts Bathsheba. And this is really controversial for a lot, of, a lot of people. Like, you know, you can see people on the Internet asking questions. Well, does God justify adultery by this situation that, you know, that you can just go kill a man and then it's going to be all okay? God will discipline you, but then it's going to all be okay. Ask David that question and the trouble that he goes through in, his, in the future, in his house, and the, and, the, and the chastisement in David's life. David would say, do not do it. No, do not go there. This is not worth it. It is so destructive, and so many people get hurt. And so David here goes to his wife, Bathsheba, comforts her. And what does God do? It's amazing. God just does this beautiful thing. He does, he gives them a son, Solomon. Solomon, <laughs> the son 
We all know who Solomon is. The son of Bathsheba and David is Solomon. What is this? What is, I mean, this is unbelievable. Does the Bible really say that? It does. Who was Solomon? Solomon was the second greatest king of all of Israel. Some say that he was probably the greatest king because during the times of Solomon was a time when that great temple was built. as when it was the when it acquired much riches. The the Solomon himself historically was known to be the greatest and most wisest man. Uh, there would be kings and queens that would travel for weeks to to visit him just to have an audience with him. Solomon was blessed, and that was what his name means. It means beloved of the Lord. Wow, God gives them a son. Do you know, when we confess and when we rebound in the grace of God, God just makes everything right. And remember what Joseph said to his brothers, his brothers who sold him into Egypt, and then his brothers are now standing in front of his brother in great need. Joseph said, what, the, what was meant for evil, and he doesn't even say you guys, what you meant. Maybe he does in some way, but he's saying what was meant for evil, God will turn around and make a blessing so that many will be saved. And this is an amazing thing about God, and this is a bit of a mystery, is that God's redemptive plan, God redeems everything. We can look at things in people's lives and say, what a mess. But you know something, it's only a matter of time if people look to the Lord that God will redeem that. And out of that, many people are going to be touched by God. And that's the way we have to look in closing. When we look at rebound and re- confession in our life, that, that yes, sin is very destructive and very, very, it's a very tragic story here. But what is the end of it? God, God, right after confession, God begins a beautiful new thing. <clears throat> and I think that we see this pattern throughout the whole Bible. Remember uh, Peter when he denied Christ three times? He denied Christ three times. And he denied Christ three times by using some explicatives in the Greek. You can see that it was pretty, uh, and he says, I don't know the, the blankety-blank man. He says that the, the third time. And what does Jesus do? After that in John 21, he gives him a calling. He calls Peter into the ministry. He says, upon, he says, he goes, Peter, You'll, I'm going to use you feed to feed my sheep. That's amazing. Many times when people fail, they get an amazing calling after, after that failure. And God uses that great event in their life. Failure can be an amazing, amazing le- lesson in a person's life. It can be one of the greatest lessons in a person's life. It can be something that God uses in such a, an amazing way. It can be a catalyst to... Um, to um, project someone into maturity, spiritual maturity. And so I want to close with this, that David understood what it meant. The second thing that happens to David is after his son is born, David defeats the Ammonites with a great victory, and he takes the king's crown. God gives him the victory. And the Ammonites, that even by David's own bad decision to have the, to let them kill Uriah, he goes after them. And he avenges Uriah's blood. And God begins to restore, David is restored back into his place. And that's what Psalm 23, it says, that he leaves me beside still waters. And he, what does he do? He restores my soul. And you know, when we, when we fail, we need to be healed by God. We need to be restored. Uh, even if it's something that happened between us and God, 
God restores us with his grace and restores us with his love. And he puts us back on track. But you know what's different? There's a brokenness there. There's a, there's a sorrow there. There's not a condemnation and not a regret, but there is a brokenness there that, that cannot be in any other way described but just a great lesson that's learned. And David has a great future with him. And I think that the, I think the moral of the story here is when sometimes preachers get up and say, David and Bathsheba, it's like, oh my gosh, it's like everybody could just feel so condemned. But really the great point of the story is, is that David confesses, a short confession, and then God restores him and there's a blessing in his life. Because God, Jesus Christ, has chosen to dwell among sinners and he chooses to use us by his grace. Amen. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you.